0: being on the podcast we finally got you on yeah
1: pretty exciting
2: yeah we um yeah we went not wanting to get you on for a while but yeah you were when we were first talking about it you were going through uh you guys was, were making a move and i know you said you're really busy with that and um didn't want to ever have to do it again
1: <laughs> yeah it was just a little bit crazy time right there but we're pretty all pretty much settled in and good to go and actually nowhere to go right now, (laughs) just sitting at home.
2: Yeah, it's just, um, everybody kind of do doing the, if you can, you can do some working from home, huh?
1: Yeah, we're actually pretty lucky to be able to do that. Um, I'm like our IT guy got us all set up with laptops to be able to, uh, link up with our systems at work. So we're pretty much for me anyways. I'm about 99% 99% good, although I can't make any parts here, but we're, um, kind of at the end of our, uh, project that we've been working on. I already made a bunch of stuff, so I am kind of in between right now. So
2: it's good. Good. Yeah, we, uh, kind of worked on some uh, questions for you, you know, before back then, just to kind of give you an idea of kind of the direction and. Um, I think just to kind of start off, probably the best thing to do is essentially, um, you know, tell us how you got into RC and, and some of your own, uh, highlights of your racing. I know you've done a lot of racing. Um, so maybe start there and then, uh, we'll get into, uh, the associated stuff a little bit.
1: All right. Um, I started racing, um, I think when I was probably 16, 17 years old, uh, getting into the RC industry though, was way before that. Um, I don't know if any of you know, or some of you probably already know, but my dad, Gene Huston was a partner in team associated.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, even before that, before he was even, even hooked up with associated, um, he raced RC cars. Team before that, he's race slot cars, dragsters, all stuff. So he was always into, into some type of racing. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, seeing RC cars for the first time was basically when my dad took me to a parking lot race in L.A. somewhere and uh, just kind of saw it and uh, figured out why he was so excited about it because it was pretty cool. But um, I was a little too young at that time to race. Uh, I had an older brother, Brian, who, um, was actually racing before I was, uh, my dad raced for a while. Um, and then slowly he kind of got my brother into it. So they both raced. Um, and then when my brother, Brian went off to college, that kind of left open a spot for me to kind of get in on, on the racing part of it. But, um, all throughout that time, my dad would let me like practice on a Saturday or after a race or something just to go drive the cars around to, you know, get used to it. But, um, that's kind of how I started racing, just following my dad's footsteps and using his backup car as a, as a first time to race. So it was kind of cool.
2: So, um, um, what was it like, I guess in those days to kind of get a car ready to drive around a a track. Like, you know, now it seems like it's kind of easy, but without, you know, it's like obviously charge the battery. There's still probably was some prep to the car to get it to drive around. Right.
1: Yeah. Back then was uh, a scale gas on road. So there's no 12 scale. There's no 10 scale. There's no real, um, nothing really else that that was kind of it and it was a lot of people made kit cars from different brands you know out that were out there but to get the car ready um you know at that time I was pretty young so my dad did most of that but uh, like you said charging the battery pack just to get it ready but um, it's kind of the same thing but very simple back then Mm-hmm. No full suspension, uh, very easy, you know, to get your car set up. But you needed to have traction. That was the, always the biggest goal. I think it's probably the same now. Trying to get enough traction for the track. Um, but back in those days, there wasn't a track. You just went to. We mm-hmm. went. We were in a club, um, and our local club was in Orange County. And even to go run, we could only run like on a Saturday. The club would go and set up the tracks basically we'd have to put boards all the way around the track we had to put markers around where the track that was and we all stood on top of either toolboxes or little step stools so that was the mm-hmm. driver's stand <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
1: um so it was more setting up the track than getting your car ready you know obviously you had to get your car ready still yeah
2: uh, and and when um what was this, about the mid-70s?
1: That was, uh, for me, it was, yeah, about mid-70s.
2: Okay. And then, um, as you kind of got into it, uh, when did your dad kind of um, partner up and get into Team Associated?
1: Um, as far as the year, I'm not sure exactly what year it was, um, but my dad used to own a gas station in Gardena, mm-hmm. and Roger was one of his customers and he'd come in and he, he basically talked to my dad and, and they got to talking and stuff and he told him about RC cars. And that's when my dad first went to a track, you know, I got him excited and um, got involved. And then as time went on a little bit, my dad was talking about selling his gas station and doing something different. He wanted to move. Yeah. And Roger was Roger was looking for a partner and you know that's just kind of how it worked out. And um dad became a partner with Roger, and went on from there.
2: And then as far as kind of tying this together a little bit, when you're um when you kinda um got into more of your you know, more of the racing. Did you do any traveling uh, with the eight scale or the nitro cars back then? Was there any like highlights when you raced those type of cars?
1: Yeah. Racing eight scale. Yeah. That was my thing. I was, I was good at it. Um, I got to where I was able to be at, at that time. They had series races kind of like they have now. So you you'd have a club race and you you travel like Northern California or Arizona and around here. And, and I got to where I was pretty good. I was always in the top five, maybe even the top three of the series races, um, which then kind of showed that I was a good driver at what I was doing. Um, so my dad would let me go to the bigger races, which like the national championships or uh, one of my biggest favorite races was, is in um, Florida, the winter champs.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: so we'd go there every year and wherever the nationals kind of took us but yeah I was able to travel um, quite a bit through the United States uh, I got good i I, uh, I also as the 12 scale car started coming about the 12e I started getting into racing the 12 scale car and throughout my racing career I've won um, a, a few national championships been in the top. Um, top 10 in the, the IFMAR world championships a couple times. Um, so I got to where I was pretty good. You know, I was never na- a world champion, but I was racing right alongside with those guys.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and in those days, wasn't there, there was a two wheel drive and a four wheel drive class, right? With the eight scale on road
0: cars.
1: Yeah. So it basically I'll start two wheel drive. And then um, the Europeans really developed the four-wheel drive end of it uh, a lot quicker than we were here in the United States. Um, So we kind of partnered up with a a couple guys in England that were developing a four-wheel drive car at that time. And so um, we kind of partnered together with them to develop the RC500 um, and that was kind of our first four wheel drive car, but at that time, there weren't enough four wheel drive cars, um, to have its own class. So they kind of ran them together. Okay. And even at the beginning, the cars weren't really good. So it took a little development to get them to where they were better. So that they, when they got better then they separated the classes.
2: Okay. And then. You know, obviously you talked about your dad earlier and just kind of his racing passion and kind of how that tied into just being involved and associated, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think just his mentality, uh, I don't know if it's the way his dad raised him or the era that he he got raised in, but he was a gearhead from when he was, even before he had a driver's license, he wanted a car. He Mm -hmm. got a car and he wanted to go fast. So he, of course, like back in those days, everyone was a hot rodder and he, he actually built a special car to go drag racing or not drag racing, but, you know, racing with, um, and then he actually found that he liked, um, building engines more than racing at the time. Okay. So he partnered with a guy that, uh, um, would be the driver and build the chassis and then my dad would build the motors. So I think a lot of his excitement was building the motors. But yeah, he did um they did drag racing cars like at the Lions Drag Strip. They got to the point where they're racing um the salt lakes, you know, the, the belly tankers and the land speed record stuff, that kind of stuff. And actually my dad and his partner were the first ones to invent the dragster. Okay at that time. Yeah, at that time, um, all the cars were standard-length cars, and his partner wanted to build a new car, and so my dad's like, okay, if we do it, we have to do it like I say we do it, you know? And he's like, we want to make it like, I, think, I don't remember the exact length, it was four foot or six foot longer, a tube rail car. And his partner's like, "What are you thinking? You can't do that!" You know. I just remember these stories my dad always told. Right. Yeah. And um, because well, if you think about it, we don't have it, the cars all start at the same point. You know, the front tires are where the starting line is, and the back tires can be anywhere they want. And when you, at the end of the drag strip, it's the same thing. The front tires are going to hit, but when you're going down the track tra- strip at that time, the, the tires they had didn't hook up very well. They're loose and slimy so they figured the longer the car was to be like an arrow more like an arrow mm-hmm. you, know, if you can go hook it up and go straighter you can get the power down better and then they moved the motor back you know so the motor's way back he sat in back of the um rear tires so they got everything super far back and they're breaking track record after track record after track record um and then guys were kind of you know making fun of them and <laughs> laughing at them but they're all around their car yeah you know, right. month months later I mean this, this story continues and of course everybody's cars are dragsters now <laughs>
0: yeah who's laughing. Uh, at? But it's
1: kind of cool <laughs> yeah so that it's that innovation I think that my dad always had and from there he got married had kids and uh, he got into slot car racing um at that time slot cars all had a the motor was inline, you know, just straight inline front and back, and and you always had uh, the twisting actually When you got on the throttle, it would kind of twist one way, you mm-hmm. know. When you brake, it would go the other way. So he thought, well, let's just turn the motor sideways. Called it a sidewinder. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you had to solder everything up. He soldered his own frame up, soldered everything, and he actually couldn't get it in there. He had to turn the motor a little bit sideways to get the um, the gear mesh right, and he soldered the motor in there. And then he broke the track record after track, <laughs> after track record. He built a few more of them, and then finally everybody, and to this day, everyone's still running Sidewinders. So he's kind of that guy that very innovative and um, not school-taught. You know, he's not, he never went to school for engineering or anything. Just, he just has these ideas. He's uh, a uh, smart guy.
2: So, you know, kind of as he moves along, you got – You know, um, when he got together with Roger and do you remember kind of when he got uh, started with Team Associated then? And and what was sort of the first thing that uh, he and Roger kind of worked on together, I guess you could say?
1: Um, At that time when Roger was just at at the honor, my dad was kind of coming into it. I think they were on the RC1, RC2, basically the second version of, that, of the RC8. And my dad told him that his car wasn't very good. <laughs> okay. So he didn't want to start, he didn't want to race that car. Uh, I think my dad at that time was driving a dynamic car and he was doing some, of course, he do his own prototyping and making stuff with it. And then through that, worked with Roger to build the RC100. And mm-hmm. RC 100 is kind of collaboration between my dad and Roger, um, to get to the point where my dad would want to drive the car. So that's kind of how it started. And I think that's when my dad started racing, um, with team associated and working with them was, was she that RC 100, um, you know, and then from there on out, her together.
2: Mm-hmm. So then there there was an RC one hundred, there was a two hundred, right? And it, and where was the variations in between? Like how many versions? Because you got to the five hundred, and then there really wasn't a lot after that, right?
1: Um. Well, there's a lot of little things, kind of like a, you know, B four, B four point one, B four point two. There's there's an RC one hundred. Um, I don't remember exactly. There was RC two hundred, a two fifty. And I think that's when they got the, started making differentials, uh, mm-hmm. with, a, with a ball diff and a gear diff, and um, we started experimenting with um, different type front ends. Nothing was really molded too much at that time; it was all machined.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so you can make changes pretty quickly. Not that they made them really quickly, but different chassis layout, different radio tray type, and it kind of progressed that way until the RC 300, um, that would be kind of like going from a B4 to a B5, you know, it was was a big change in, in the whole, um, design of the car, different power pod, disc brakes, ball diff plastic starting to incorporate plastic pieces into it.
2: Okay. Um, and then, uh, the 300 and then you got by there and then the 500 was kind of the full out four wheel drive car,
0: right?
1: Yeah. So that, was that where it really, that's where our collaboration with some of your, a couple of your guys, uh, basically came up with this four wheel drive, um, car. And even at that point, um, it was so much better than our two wheel drive that I think at, uh, you, at that time we had two wheel drive and four wheel drive class. So some guys, of course, two wheel drive is much cheaper. So some guys with on two wheel drive, some guys with on four wheel drive. So we still had both, but, um, actually not four wheel drive, drive. It's two wheel drive and then suspension car. Okay. The suspension car at the time was just two wheel drive. And then, In the future, it turned into four wheel drive. So there's a, like, say, an RC500, then there's an RC500 four wheel drive. Mm -hmm. That was the next version.
2: And so I'm just trying to get the, so we get the kind of the timeline going. What, um, at what point, um, you know, so at that point, uh, when was like, uh, when did like the Ron Paris and the Ralph Birch and those guys, when did they start coming into kind of into the picture?
1: Um, I was actually trying to look through our, our website cause it has a lot of that stuff in there. Um, I think Ralph Birch started coming into the picture, like with the RC, uh, 500 right around 1983, 82. Okay. Um, he was running uh, electric cars for us and I think even before Ron Paris was running with us, Ralph started racing with us
3: mm-hmm. and
1: then kind of that same time as when Ron Paris uh, was racing also. So before Ron, um, with associated, my dad would make all the motors. He still, he was still that motor guy. He yeah. likes doing stuff for building motors. Just, he can't, you know, just a gearhead. And um, he just loved making motors. So he kind of collaborated with Ron Paris, because um, Paris is kind of the same thing. He's a motor guy. He just loved building motors. And so there was a point where they kind of merged together to where the guy started running Paris Motors. Um Along with help from my dad, they they spent hours dyno testing, um, actually in my my garage until my mom and the neighbors kind of kicked them out. <laughs> right, um, it was pretty noisy. So yeah, they they build motors together. Um, or get together like every couple weekends and do some dyno testing and and get motors ready for the guys. And they you know of course Bill Giannis, Malphurds um, Jr. and and all those guys. Uh, would would get these motors, you know? Um, so that's kind of about when it was. Right around middle eighties, I think, middle yeah. early eighties.
2: So when when did you actually start um, helping with or working at Associated or start helping with the the, the projects or um, kind of going down that road? Uh, for me,
1: I started. My very first thing was. Before I was even 15, 16, I was just a little kid. My mom would bring stuff home for us to do. I used to put uh, set, screws, set screws in the slot car wheels. Um, <laughs> we used to make slot cars back in the day, too. And
3: mm-hmm. so
1: that was a pain in the ass. So I always get that job of putting the set screws in the wheels. And then I could sit at home and just do hundreds of them, you know, and I get paid. So, um, And then I... I was able to start working part-time going through high school. Uh, as soon as I got a car, I was able to drive there and go to school half day and then work half day. And I was a packager. I was working in the packaging room with, with the girls, mm-hmm. packaging parts, you know. Um, from there, I got into shipping. I did shipping for about two weeks. I told my dad, I go, you know what? If this is what I have to do to work here, then I'm not going to work here because <laughs> I hated <it> shipping. <laughs> okay. Uh, and at the enough. same time, at the same time, my uh, best friend—they hired him to work in the machine shop because they were getting more busy. And uh, I told, him, "That's what I want to do. I want to work in there." And so he transferred me in the machine shop. So,
0: so, you, so you moved him to shipping um, and then you went in the machine shop. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, luckily,
0: uh, we were so busy that we could both be
1: in the machine shop. So that was okay. Ah, okay. Right. And I kind of forgot about shipping because I didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> um, yeah. So I just basically, um, just to prevent guy, you know, pushing a button on the machine or sitting in front of a drill press pulling the lever down, you know, drilling um probably at that time, RC three hundred rear bulkheads, um drilling and tapping wheels, gluing rubber, uh mountain donuts on tires and grinding them, um, just just the basic stuff. Um and basically from doing that, I also worked in the we used to have a vacuum farm. Jason knows all about that. So we used to make our own bodies. Uh, we had an mm-hmm. in-house guy, uh, that made the molds, um, Lloyd Asprey He was a genius at the time and made some amazing molds for the bodies. But, um, yeah, so I pulled bodies packaged to work the machine shop, worked in shipping, I pretty much did everything there at one point or another.
2: So what did you kind of, um, what did you, at what point did you kind of get involved with some of your own, um, You know, besides kind of being on the production side of things, getting more like into the prototype side of things.
1: So what got me to the next step was uh, my boss in the machine shop. His name is Mike Rowland, and he raced for us too. He ended up moving on, but I got to the point where I was basically his apprentice. And he, between him and Roger, probably mostly Roger teaching me, um, how to make tooling. Cause we had giant punch presses, grinders, um, lathes. We had all, all kinds of stuff where we did, um, a lot of production in house. So through that, I learned how to make tooling, mold, like punch press, mold tooling, grinder fixtures, all, all kinds of stuff to where I was basically to the point where, um, my, had left the company he moved on did something else so that kind of put me into being the manager of the machine shop Mm -hmm. and at that time uh we're expanding still getting bigger and bigger um we moved at one point um from santa ana to costa mesa which then we were able to get a bigger machine shop get cnc mills our cnc lathes and threading machine, rolling machines, Swiss turning machines. So I had to learn how to do all these things as technology kind of came about. Yeah. You know, there, there weren't any CNC's back then. Um, so we kind of learned it as we went. Um, so for me, Roger was a big help and uh, Roger Curtis was a big help in basically training and teaching me how to use these machines, how to think like an engineer. I wasn't an engineer. I didn't go to engineering school. I went mm-hmm. from high school right to associate. So I'm more of a, more along like my dad, where I just kind of knock it out and do it, try it, and kind of guy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Mike and leaving and making me basically the firm in there, that's kind of along the time when, on uh, 10 scale off road, uh, Kind of came into the picture. So I kind of backed into being in that position when all the development of, say, the RC 10 uh, started coming along. So it was a, kind of a fun time to be there. Well, it's still a fun time to be there, but so it was a good time to, to be there at that time.
2: Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, obviously that's kind of the, um, like you said, kind of rounding the corner getting into uh, you know the rc10 project and you know so much has been talked about and then the photos out there of this you know some of these um you know projects where this rc10 was uh was made and you know it was my understanding that you that you made a lot of the parts on this prototype car that's in a lot of the pictures and what what was what was that like in kind of going down that road of of uh, putting that that first car together?
1: It was pretty exciting. And I actually still have that car as well as the one of the cars that we raced at the first Nationals with the RC10. So those are kind of two of my prized possessions, I guess, car-wise. But um, Roger was the lead designer of the off-road stuff. Uh, along with help from my dad, of course, along the way. But just going from nowhere, because all we did was on-road at that time. We did A-scale gas and 12-scale electric. And then all of a sudden, you see the popularity of, you know, this off-road thing coming along, and who wanted to be on board with it. So we, it was kind of neat to start from zero all the way up to, I guess, where we're at now. But going to the tracks, seeing what people are doing, kind of laughing at what they're doing because they're being a on-road racer guy, you know, everything has to be really pretty precise. And you see these off-road guys were, you know, I mean, they're, they were like taping extra receiver packs to the top of their wings to get more traction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was kind of funny to see, you know, I didn't even know if they had oil in the shocks, you know, the things are bouncing all over the place. So we had to, have a pretty big learning curve to see what was good at the time and and an idea of how to make something better so we went to a few of the score off-road shows which is the full-size cars you know what they're running out there and my dad and Roger kind of looked at all the different designs the newest latest things and kind of saw something that caught their eye and had you know the a arm type car mm-hmm. and it's kind of what they based the idea off of. So Rogers in his office, just drawn up all this stuff, you know, he's drawn, um, transmission differential six gear, you know, inside the transmission, the suspension on it. So he's drawing all this stuff up and he'd give me the drawings and I grab some plastic or aluminum or whatever it was and just started making the parts. Um, which was kind of exciting for me because, um, I never really did that before, you know, and, and again, nothing CNC back then. It's all just hand done. So wow. that's the way things, things kind of looked differently back then. Cause you couldn't do any really cool stuff, you know, and you had to think of how, how it could be molded and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, so we, we knocked out all kinds of stuff before we got to the point where, uh, we have the RC 10, you know, the, the final product. So, um, I, um, you've probably seen pictures of prototype uh, RC 10 stuff that we had to go through t- to get to that point and testing and everything, but it was fun. I think one of the hardest things was for me to do the chassis
3: mm-hmm.
1: and we never did that before and I had to make a, basically a, a one inch thick slug piece of the chassis basically looked like the chassis, just a solid one inch piece, thick aluminum. And we had to experiment with folding the aluminum around that to create the shape. Mm -hmm. Um, So we made several different ones because the first one, the battery didn't fit in there. (laughs) So we had, we tried all different kinds of stuff. We got to the point where we have that classic RC 10 shape, you know, Mm -hmm. um, it just basically beating on it with a hammer. Like a, you feel like you're a body mechanic, you know, just bending it, bending it, bending it. And sometimes it would stretch and crack or tear. And so this it it probably took a couple of weeks to where we got a final chassis out of it. Um, but then you could start bolting stuff to it, you know?
2: Mm-hmm. So that was pretty fun. Yeah. I mean, and then, um, yeah, I'm kind of going through and find, trying to find some of the photos while we're talking to you just to kind of um, remember a little bit what it everything looks like. But, you know, so do you think, you know, when Roger was kind of working on this design, you know, with your dad and, what, and uh, basing it a little bit off of some stuff that they saw in real life? But, I mean, the way that this thing is laid out... Um, you know, the transmission and, um, you know, the the dog bones and all that stuff. I mean, this thing is, it's 100% the blueprint that all these cars are based off of now. I mean, honestly, I mean, honestly, like when you, you know, when you put a B6 next to this RC10, sure, you can, you know, if you look past all the materials and all that and you just look at kind of the, the creation of this thing, I mean, they're basically still the same type of thing. Um, yeah. And, um, but it must've been, you know, pretty interesting to, like you said, start from scratch, right? Like I do, there was nothing. I mean, there was the, you know, the to and all that kind of stuff out there, but really, you know, there was an old video where Roger basically said he just drew a straight line. horizontal line on the paper. And he was like, that's where I want the bottom of the chassis to be. And he just kind of started there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you can see the, the, the two brains between my dad and Roger. They, they they think differently, but they think, um, uniquely, like they're, they're thinking of things that haven't been invented yet or, or haven't thought of yet so far down to where so far in the future that this is the way it should be. You know, mm-hmm. um, guys have tried trailing arm suspension in the back, which is like Volkswagen. Um, there's the, the five link suspension with like, you know, a little car and just different things, but it all kind of comes back, like you said, to what we're running now. Um, he yeah. put one right next to each other and because of the rules they are all the same width, the same length of, uh, the tires have changed somewhat in a lower profile and and bigger, but um, they still have the same basic suspension, AM suspension, you know?
2: Yeah. I mean, to me, I just look at it and I'm like, you know, I just eliminate the looks and I'm just, I, you know, to me, it was just, um, you know, it's baffling to me because I mean, this thing, you know, we go on about now, where, uh, you know, B5, B6 generation, oh, do you have gullwing front arms or not? Or, But this car had gullwing front arms, you know? And, <laughs> right. and it's funny because it's just like, you know, this thing is the blueprint for all um, off-road two-wheel drive vehicles. Um,
1: even even the, uh, the ball disc. If you think about the ball disc, which mm-hmm. we're still running now, Mm-hmm. Um, that, Roger invented that for the 12 scale car mm-hmm. back in the day there were no diffs back then There were just straight axles and cars are difficult to drive with a straight axle so yeah. he thought of all different kind of dips and stuff and he invented a very simple differential and I think I'm pretty sure it was the 12 scale car that was the first car that I went into to this day 12 scale cars still have that same ball dip and he incorporated it into, which then became like the stealth Dips, you know, mm-hmm. and it came away from that, the six gear into the three gear. And the dip rings got a little bigger, but um, it's basically still the same thing. Yeah. So it's, it came from then, so long ago, and in the 80s and 90s till till now, and it's still basically the same thing.
2: So kind of uh, moving along, I mean, so by the time you had, and I'm sure this was, um, I'm sure you've even probably don't remember a lot of the the work of this, but from this first car that you guys had here that you, you know, essentially custom built this car to the point where you're actually selling an RC-10, do you remember like that That sort of that time frame of, um, you know, because, I mean, I, you know, obviously being in this business too, it's like, you know, you have your ideas of, oh, you know, we'll get this thing out in five or six months or it'll be this amount of time. And, you know what I mean? You have all these kind of like mini goals or things in your mind of when you'd like it to be done versus what reality is. But, I mean, I'm sure that had to be a huge undertaking to go from that to, selling the very first car
1: you know with the rc10 it was like a rocket ship for the company at that time you know where we had the shop in santa Ana, a Mittinger, like one section of the building and that's where we're making these cars and um, as we started to release it everybody wanted it everybody wanted it, it was like a car to have and so we did it. we built as many as we could as fast as we could and it wasn't enough so mm-hmm. that building we had to knock a hole in the wall rent the next section over and expand so shipping kind of had its own section we were able to expand the shop to where we can make more stuff and we are almost I would say the first three years we were always back ordered we couldn't make enough
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And the whole saying where you know, when's that going to be out? When's it going to be ready? Two weeks. <laughs> I think my dad was the one that coined the phrase two weeks uh, because people just wanted everything so fast and we worked as hard as we could, as fast as we could. And when we got close, it's kind of like, I'm sure it happens with most companies. You, you think you're ready, you're almost there. And it should be two weeks and then something kind of sets you back. It's like, oh, crap. Yeah. all right two weeks so ready two weeks and something sets you back so um, I don't know basically I think that car trying to make it fast enough was probably the most difficult thing expanding expanding expanding. Uh, mm-hmm. We basically were probably five, I'd say six times bigger by the time we started from when we started making the RC10 that we were too big for that Uh, Ellinger building. uh, It grew almost six times. We we filled up the whole building that we were in and we kind of rented the space across the alley for storage and all that. Um, So I I don't remember the question, but I think that was the answer.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think just the idea of going from that prototype car to actually selling them It is a long road, I'm sure, and it was, and that's not even probably, like you said, making the, expanding your building and moving stuff around, and and then you're trying to do it all as fast as you can, right?
1: Fast as we can, of course, and with good quality, so finding vendors that can do it. Uh, The worst part of all of that whole car was the chassis. The mm-hmm. chassis you had to go through so many stages from the beginning to the end and and because we were trying to do a lot of our machining in-house uh, we had a vendor that would uh, basically punch out the chassis or, or, or mold them when you when the when you form them at that at that time the material was in we call zero condition and yield so it was very soft you can you can form it around this thing and um, it was still soft. You know, you can, you can twist it in your hand, easy, taco it, whatever you want to do. So from there, it would have to go to a heat treater. And that same day when it get out of the heat treating, it was still just as soft as when it went in and they packed it with dry ice. So it's like super cold, frigid cold, because when they heat treated it, it would warp. The things would twist it buckle, it'd do all kinds of things. So we would hand straighten, um, Every single chassis, we'd have a, a flat plate that we just had like a rubber mallet, and we'd flatten out the bottom of the chassis, flatten out, straighten out the tongue, use your eye kind of to look down the bottom of the chassis and kind of tweak it, mm-hmm. set it aside, do the next one. You're just mm-hmm. doing this over and over, thousands of chassis, one by one. Um, and then you send it back out for heat treat to get um, the, the finish hardening on it. And so then it'd come back, you'd have to countersink it, clean it, deeper it and get it anodized. I mean, it was very time consuming. Um, but at that time, that's it was, there wasn't molded chassis at the time. So mm-hmm. that's kind of the way it was. And, um, kind of probably the longest lead time thing was just getting chassis done. Um, but you know, that, that was all part of it. Expanding the machine shop. to when we got a, our first CNC lathe because we were trying to make things uh, quicker and better. Mm -hmm. Um, Most everything was machined out of the house and we do secondary operations. We do some drilling and tapping Mm -hmm. um, and the prices of things would go up. So uh, we bought our first CNC lathe to make dog bones. And Mm -hmm. that, or uh, actually the first thing we did was a top shaft. Of the six gear transmission because it was very hard to make that with the taper, the spread, the flat spots on it, and everything. We did it all in house to try and save cost, uh, not only for us, but for the customer. You know, one of our goals in all the cars that we've made, even to this day, is to make something that's affordable for the customer. Mm-hmm. You know, you can always make something really badass and bitching and, um, and it will cost two or three times or, or ten times the price but it's not good for the customer. We're trying to have the customer's heart uh, and a wallet in mind doing all this stuff at the same time.
2: So we did the uh, like you said the the CNC stuff. I, I remember seeing the chassis come in on the dry ice when I, when I was there know, I was uh, years later, but I remember seeing these pallets come in and then the dry ice. And I was just like, what is going on here? Like, yeah. you know, cause I was like, you know, I was like 16, 17 years old. And you're just thinking, you know, before you see all this and you're just a driver or a racer, you know, you're, You just take for granted how all this stuff comes to market and and where you can actually drive it and race it. But when you actually got there and you could see this stuff happening and you're like, wow, this is a huge undertaking to to make all this happen. You know, like you're saying, the countersinking and the I remember the the fixtures you guys had and the stuff to do the the counter syncing. Um, That was a big thing, too, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. You get to experience all that. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Even the countersinking, um, we bought two of these big drill presses that had these, uh, heads on it that you can have multiple countersinks on it. And there's so many holes in the bottom of the car and so close together, we couldn't do it all at one time. So we had one drill press that I'm going to say had 10 countersinks on it and it was all pneumatic control. You know, you push a button, it'd come down to a stop and then it countersink all the holes at the same time and it'd pop up and put another chassis on, push your button, do the same thing. Um, and then you'd have to take it to the next machine over. Well, actually, at one time, we just had one machine. We'd have to change the head out and all that. And we ended up with two machines um, and then doing it that way. So, And I didn't know anything about that kind of stuff back then. So I had to <laughs> figure this out along with Roger, um, helping me. We, we learned together how to do this kind of production stuff. You know, it's things that we, we didn't go to school for and it's technology is kind of happening. So 10 years before that, there weren't those kind of things around. So CNC wasn't around when I was in school. Mm-hmm. So it kind of happens when you're doing it. So you kind of learn as you go along. Um, and using the, you know, what little of my dad's brain power that I have. I mean, he was thinking way out there, but I did my best and I I could figure things out and make things happen. So um, I got a little bit of Roger and my dad's um, brain together to, to kind of get us through things. So it was fun.
2: So, I mean, is there, and I, I mean, obviously there's many different <clears throat> versions, but is there any do you have any idea how many that original RC-10 was sold? Like, if you had to just guess?
1: I, boy, you know, I've been asked that question so many times, and um, I don't know. I, I could tell you a number, but I'm sure I'd be way off either way high or way low. Because at the time we are doing a lot of this stuff, there were no computers that we were doing inventory on. Actually, we didn't do inventory back then. it just kind of, she just order okay, order another five thousand. Okay, order another five thousand, and we just go through it. Yeah, there was really no stocking stuff because when it came in, it got done and it went out. You know, we we're backward with stuff. So, wow. um, there weren't like books at the end of the year where they, they tallied everything up and oh, we sold this many cars. It's yeah. Just, Wasn't really there. I mean, you could do it, probably.
2: I mean, do you think it's all handwritten stuff? Would you think a hundred plus thousand is out of the question?
1: Hundred thousand? I would say a hundred thousand might be a good number. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's just a guess, you know. You never really know. Yeah. I remember. I remember Pete telling me, uh, you know, when I used to talk to him, that he's like. He's like, I'm telling, he would tell me this. He's like, I'm telling you, I would just tell a vendor, keep making them, keep making this until I tell you not to. That's right. he, he would just say, keep making it until I say not to. That was his purchase order to them was just keep making it until I tell them not to. That's
1: what it was. I tell you, we, we yeah. had our one machine, one CNC machine. All it did was make dog bones. Eight hours a day, five days a week, every single day. That's all it did. <laughs> we could have sold over a hundred thousand. I don't know it's because you use up spare parts too. Yeah. So uh, with these racing cars, you know, for every guy buys the kit, he probably buys another spare part for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and back in those days, probably two or three. You know, depends on what it was. Yeah. But yeah, just keep making parts. Just Keep it. We had a uh, another a Swiss lathe that we made titanium turnbuckles on, mm-hmm. and that's all it did. The only thing it did every day, made titanium turnbuckles all day, eight hours a day, <laughs> every day.
2: <laughs> change the length yeah. and keep going, right? Yeah, it's just
1: a program. You change the program, boom, it changes the length, and it's good to go.
2: So yeah, crazy. what kind of kind of jump jump up here in the timeline a little bit, but um, but getting into like what I kind of thought and this is going down the the line but of the I think the cars that were so intriguing to everybody and for me was this when you guys did these worlds in 89 and 91 and you made these special cars for the race and you know to this day it seems like those cars are still, highly sought after and people still know that name stealth car um what you know what was it like um kind of getting ready for those events and what was kind of the goal and then i guess at the other side you guys are super busy selling the cars you're making and then you have these worlds to do where you're thinking hey let's make a different kind of car just for this race right
1: yeah, I mean, with the RC10, we're kind of stuck. You know, with the the width of the chassis in the back, um, the way you make the front end, all these things were, we're kind of stuck to where the, the the suspension arms were the length they were, and we wanted to do the trend was to kind of go longer suspension arms. So this was a way to um, test and prototype a theory of okay. If we had longer suspension arms, what do we do? So that's when we started testing. And with the with the eighty nine car, um, we had the platform, and and two they had the graphite chassis, like the TQ ten and, and those mm-hmm. things. So, so graphite was kind of um, available at the time with with a kick up in it and everything. So you can pretty much route out whatever you want, which is really cool. Um, even that, I I did it on our uh, mill at the shop prototyping just by hand, you know, and then of course the bandsaw and everything, but, um, it was a way to, that we could prototype parts of a whole different design, um, and test it, you know, and so we, we did some local testing and, and found the cars were good, you know, better than what we had. So we went full board to, to try and win the world championships, which we do every time. Even to this day, we, we try and make something that is the ultimate goal is to win the biggest race in the world.
3: Mm-hmm. You
1: know? And some people get mad at that to where, you know, well, I can't compete at that level. I can't get the stuff that they got. And you know what? This is the world championships. You want to win that race. And for mm-hmm. your manufacturing, for your team, this is one event where it's not really for the average guy, although they can race there, and nothing stops them. But they may not have the best. And so this is the time where you can showcase the best, your best drivers with your best ideas. You know, even at the World in Australia, the tires that were run there were tires that were out. Yokomo had these tires. The Losi had X pattern tires. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had tires that they couldn't get. They had tires we couldn't get. We had a car they couldn't have, you know, kind of that whole game. But um, this was a chance to to have us try this design. And at, when we made that car, you can look at the arms of suspension arms were molded suspension arms. So we had, I think we had four, or I'm sorry, five or six drivers. I don't remember how we call it offhand, but. Um, because we had so many drivers there, not that five was a lot, we had to make enough suspension arms, um, and have them strong. So we actually made molds to make the front suspension arms and rear suspension arms only for that race, which is kind of, you know, odd, you know, normally you don't make it a, a mold <laughs> and then only make it for one race, you know, right? Uh, but these were. The, it was a basic shape of the arm. I had to drill and tap the arms and put the hinge pin holes in them and mill a little bit out of them, actually quite a lot of it out of it. But, um, so we went a hundred percent at these races, the worlds to, to, um, you know, make the best and, and it worked.
2: <laughs> yeah. and, <laughs> and, it and it, well. obviously, Yeah. I obviously see it had paid off over the years, you know, you kind of incorporated the, um, you know, that that eighty nine car you're able to put the, you know, kind of the stealth transmission. That was the you know, kind of got into the stealth transmission.
1: And the slipper. That and was the first place I think we did the slipper.
2: Mm-hmm. And um, and then you kind of went through where which was really neat in those days where you didn't really let people see it, right? Like it it could only be seen with the body on or on the track, right?
1: Yeah. So that's the whole stealth part of it. You know, Mm -hmm. Just you you knew it was there, but you couldn't get pictures of it. And one of the reasons were, you know, a lot of ideas and a lot of energy and thought into making that. And we want people to take pictures of and just go copy it. Mm -hmm. So we actually made a sticker that goes on top of the body that said, like the said copies with the strike through through it, you know, no copies. Right. So, um, Oh, and, and we blocked a lot of the photographers to, you know, make sure they didn't get pictures. But they did, which is kind of neat because they got a little some spy shots out and kind of made the whole stealth thing even more eerie. You know, so
2: yeah, cool. I mean, and that was all before, you know, the era that we're in right now, where all this stuff that's immediate and social media and everything. I mean, this is stuff that um you know blocking the photographers and all that and but it did add to the the curiosity factor and probably built built the hype um even more
1: yeah without even knowing it
2: (laughs) and what's amazing is so you'd run this race and um and you never sold the car, never built the car, nope. never sold the car, um, went through another couple years. And then you guys did that worlds in Detroit where you revised the whole car again and basically did the same thing all over again for for that event. And uh, of course, won won the worlds again and uh, and then didn't sell the car again. Right. Which today would be yeah. like you would. There's no way that would happen today. Right.
1: Right. Yeah, there's no way that
2: would happen now.
1: So the Detroit car was kind of similar but different. The, the biggest difference was the front end. And, after, you know, when we were testing that front end and, and the car, the Detroit car, um, yeah. what's kind of cool with that front end is no matter what position, like if you end off of a jump and you're your front tires would hit the ground, but the chassis could never dig in because it was way back. The arms were swept forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it handled good. We thought it handled good, but actually when we got it to the track, it wasn't the best car there.
3: Mm-hmm. But, it,
1: um, we have the best drivers and a lot more of the cars and we got it to work good. Um, but that's kind of the reason we didn't come out with that design in the front. It just really wasn't, um, as good as what it could you know could have been what we what we actually ended up with you know Mm -hmm. so um but
2: yeah and and then kind of in between here um you know it's uh you know when you ran the race I, i heard stories of you guys really kind of at the race itself, you're really kind of thrashing, trying to, like you said, make the car work better on the track and the conditions. And there was even some times where they said that you were kind of making parts, you know, in during practice and and stuff like that. Do you have any memory of doing that type of thing? Yeah.
1: Yeah. in Australia, um, we, you know, it's a long ways to go, right? I mean, thousands of miles away. So you can only bring so much stuff extra um, if you had to make something. So in our testing uh, at the track, um, Jay Halsey and his dad had wanted to try longer shocks in the front. So the track was really slippery. We were doing everything we could to get traction. Uh, so the long-arm car was really good for that. Um, so everything he wanted was traction to try and hook up. So he went and tried, he cut out a shock tower himself that basically put the rear shocks on the front kind of looks odd, but it, you know, it just kind of softened up that front end and, um, gave it, I don't know if it gave it more travel. I think it gave it more travel as well. So it worked so well that we're like, oh crap, now I got to make five more of these things. So <laughs> I'm actually at the track with a sheet of fiberglass. And a coping saw. I took and traced his shock tower on there used a coping saw and we're at a park. The, the track is in a park, so there's no, not a lot of electricity there. So I'm using a hand drill that you hold the top and you crank the wheel right. to drill the holes. Like the old time. Oh, the old crank, crank, crank drill. The yeah. old crank lines, yeah. Because there's nothing to plug a Dremel into. Mm-hmm. I mean... That's what it was like at the track at that time. <laughs> so, yeah, we're we're actually using a coping saw, using a hand crank drill, and just making parts right there. It's funny because back then, you did so much more by hand. You know, you weren't afraid to like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just cut this off of the chassis. I'm going to drill some holes in my chassis. I'm going to grind this away a little bit. Yeah. Now people don't do that. They're so afraid, like, well, how come it's not done already? Well, how come I can't just get it done, you know? Yeah. It's so different than um, back in the day where people just did stuff. They weren't afraid to do stuff. They weren't afraid to try something. Now everybody wants it handed to
2: them. Yeah. They're very experimental, right? Yeah. They weren't afraid. Yeah. Yeah. So um, kind of... You know, so we'll get by that um, you know that Detroit worlds which uh, obviously you could you could spend hours talking about all that stuff but um, in between this you kind of you developed the RC10t and then into the GT and uh, as a racer I remember back then kind of um, you know I wanted this truck so bad I remember you guys had a few trucks i think you you raced one for sure at the winter champs and and you cliff and i think butch had these new trucks and um a little bit of the same he kind of machined special parts He had the narrow front wheels and tires and um kind of launched a, a a stadium truck that was um gonna be the next popular vehicle you probably couldn't keep up with for a while right
1: yeah, it, it kind of just kept piling on to the same RC10 platform. Um, and the truck, we didn't really, we didn't invent the truck at all. I mean, there's guys who had, I think Andy Jacobson might have been uh, one of the guys who put the big tires on there and the truck body and it kind of expanded from there. There's JG parts and, uh, and and everybody made stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it got to the point where like, Hey, we need to make something here. It's, it's really fun to drive. You know, when you, when you first drive it compared to buggy, I thought it was more fun to drive because you could make mistakes a little bit, you know, and it wouldn't show on the track. They're just hooked up a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we went hundred percent into making a truck version. And I think the winner chance was probably the first race that we, we showed the car. Even then we had, I most mean, of we had powder coated chassis. Yeah. Like an orange one and a green one and pink one and whatever. But, um, like you were talking about the front tires, there weren't any rules on how wide the front tires had to be. Um, so I think there was a, a tire diameter size. So we made a narrow front tire. Uh, it was basically like a buggy tire, kind of more of a balloon shape.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, And they worked great with those tires. But then they changed the rules after that and we couldn't run them anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But yeah, it's just kind of like, you know, thinking out there, okay, what do the rules say? And what can we make, you know, sell everything? Of course, we want people to go out, buy it, and win. It's not like we're trying, like at the world's, we try and win that race. So we, we kind of make stuff just for a few guys and then eventually come out with it. But, um, we want to try and stay on top of the game. So that's where it came out with a narrow front tire. Um, then the rules changed and it had to go to a wide tire, but I think it was pretty fun. I like driving truck probably more than buggy at that time. And then like you talked about the, the GT from there, um, that really got me more excited about anything. Cause I like gas. Yeah. <laughs> putting a gas motor in anything is way better.
2: When, you know, what I remember thinking as a racer at that point was, you know, you still hadn't revised the RC-10 and you did the truck. So you had the RC-10T and and sort of the RC-10 and you kind of had several versions, but the buggy still hadn't come out with that new version of the buggy. And then I want to say that from what I was told anyway, that your dad was like, he, he saw this gas truck thing kind of going and he's like we're gonna get into this gas truck class and it seemed like the buggy project kind of got put on hold to do this uh gas truck which seemed strange at the time until it started selling really well right
1: yeah and it kind of is what we talked about before is trying to keep up with production um although we made the this, this stealth cars and long suspensions, we kind of knew the direction to go or where we were heading for, but we we're selling a crap ton of cars and coming up with a 10 T kind of just pigtailed onto that, you know, just kept on going. Mm-hmm. And then now a nitro car, all with the same platform, same arm, same front end, you know, figure out how to get a motor and, and gas tank in there and just, keep on going because um that it was popular you know to just stop everything and change there really wasn't a need to at that time um our cars were doing well and mm-hmm. um, we had that in our back pocket but there was no need to do it at that point you know
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, and i think some technology had to change too um i think even low c probably came out with a with a plastic chassis Uh, Which, you know, kind of made that, made people's eyes open like, oh man, you know, plastics come a long way, injection molding with graphite fills, with with fiberglass fills, and different hardness types of plastic. So um, that was clearly the direction to go. And they were the first to do that. But we didn't need to go there yet. And we weren't quite needing to at that time. So I think following with the truck. The gas truck, the GT2, you know, well yeah. the GT2 came later, but the, even the gas truck, so popular, such a fun class of ride to ride to drive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I I'm kind of, I'm kind of bummed actually that It's not popular anymore, you know?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it, it didn't really, um, a lot of this stuff didn't really hit me because it's different as a racer. But, you know, when when I was just, a, a, you know, when I was just a racer and we would do this, uh, you know, all you wanted was a new two wheel buggy. You know, you're just thinking, oh, you know, w- you know, we just need two wheel buggies. But it didn't really from a business side, like you're saying, what you don't really understand is that it, it, it for most people is it didn't like you explained, it didn't make sense because you're already selling a bunch of them and they were still winning. But what made sense was if you had the stadium truck and then you had this GT, which, um, you know, a lot of people told me that the GT was almost like became like the best seller eventually.
1: Well, if you think about it, the RC GT, RC 10 GT never lost a national championship. Right. Every time we raced it, every year we won Mm -hmm. so it was the car to have you know and and it worked really good had the aluminum chassis you know to cool the engine and the suspension was was there the tires were there and it was a fun car to drive and and the almost any engine you put in there was overpowering so the engine really um was the best part about it because you can go as fast as you want and probably too fast so it made it made it easier. For the electric part, you're always trying to get the best batteries, the best motor, you know, and try and go four minutes without dying. But with a gas motor, it took all that out of it. So it really made it fun to drive. Uh, you can you run longer qualifiers, you can run longer semi mains and main events, and um, like it is now with gas. You know, you just, you can run an hour long main event or 45 minutes or half hour. I think that was the excitement for it and. Eventually made it um, popular by everybody, yeah. not just our car, but, but all gas trucks.
2: Yeah, and it, it almost seemed like that was the toughest one for anybody. For some reason, to catch you guys in that class was, uh, for some reason, that GT was. Uh, it was just a, an amazing truck, and and I, I, you know, even you know, Low C, you know, they put a great effort in trying to. Outdo that truck, but it was very difficult, and I'm sure it was frustrating for them because um, it was a, a much more simple vehicle. They kept making it almost more complicated and adding things, but it wasn't it wasn't better. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, that 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 truck was. Uh, and I guess, ironically, you know, as you move around, it was kind of a mid-motor truck. <laughs> in, yeah, you're in right. a sense. So, in a sense, that was, uh, and, and we really, at the time, we probably never really, we were probably trying to make it more like the electric truck, but I remember there was times kind of in the peak when, you know, Richard and Mark, and when we were racing, you know, they would say, I think this might even be better than my electric truck.
1: Yeah. And could have been. we still get yeah, the battery pack out there to kind of get the weight
2: back. But mm-hmm. yeah, the motor was in front. Yeah. Just real kind of interesting. So, uh, yeah, that truck, uh, obviously amazing seller. So we'll, we'll keep moving down the road. And then, uh, the, the next big one I thought was, uh, um, I don't know, was the TC3, uh, getting in the touring car, uh, which was kind of like, <laughs> you know, this, it's crazy. Cause you started on road, you do gas, you know, 12 scales, then you're, uh, in the RC 10, you follow that, uh, prototype cars, the 10 T kind of follow the market then the GT and then all of a sudden we had to make touring cars. And, um, I was a little more involved in that one cause I got to drive it, um, outside associated was, I remember was, I was one of the first ones to drive it, um, with Cliff and Reedy, but, uh, that was a huge and I, a prototype car as well. I remember you, um, had a lot of work in that one. Yeah.
1: So that was a, that was, uh, a turning point also because of course we had 12 scale, uh, 10 scale pan cars. And then it, it got to where people were making these full suspension terrain cars and, um, we had to get in the game. Right. Mm-hmm. So same thing. We had to do all the research. And this this is where Cliff was there at the time and, and Roger and they're pretty much the brain brain power behind all the design and everything. And, um, but then it came to me where I had to make all the prototype parts. And again, no CNC equipment at this time. This is all stuff that has to be done, just take a block of plastic, put it in a hand mill, and just start cutting, you know, one corner at a time, doing all these things. Uh, you were going to make 20 of these things. You <laughs> just kind of make yeah. one at a time and go testing. Uh, but with the shaft drive car, The concept was at that time because um, batteries and motors were always an issue. You know, you you had to go four minutes as fast as you could for as long as you could. And so with the shaft drive, it's the transmission uh, is so free, thinking that uh, with it being so free, you could go faster or longer. That's kind of the the idea behind it. Mm -hmm. Um, So in doing so, we had to create Um, basically everything. We couldn't just grab stuff from some other people and just start testing things. We had to make our own stuff. So making a drive shaft, you know, do you make it out of aluminum? Do you make it out of carbon fiber? Mm -hmm. Uh, Ring and pinion gears was probably the biggest issue for us to get the production ring and pinion gears right. Right just and the transmission, the whole, all those things all lined up perfectly. We never really did that before in any of our past cars, mm-hmm. um, not with bevel gears. So it took us a long time working with our molding guy and making all these different types to get it to where uh, we finally got a good gear mesh, uh, quiet and good gears that lasted um, without stripping all that stuff. It, it was a, uh, that was probably the biggest hurdle in the whole project is is getting those gears done. Right. Eventually the gears with the nitro car weren't strong enough, but at the beginning with with the TC3, um, everything seemed to be just about right. So it was a a good project.
2: Yeah. I mean, as I kind of remember it, um, it was a long run, um, building up to getting having that first car and um, you know I remember doing the sh- the big Chicago hobby show and I remember um they had a uh, you know a prototype that they weren't really letting people see but um kind of maybe they were taking some orders or back orders I'm not sure what they were doing with it but I remember your dad would come to where I was at in the show and he would you know, I'd just be sitting there, you know, doing something, and he would just come over and say, tell him how good the TC3 is. He drove it. So, I would tell him the story, you know, whoever the person was, and and, you know, like, you need to obviously, how your dad, you know, his mannerisms and everything, like, how to tell the story, alright, just tell him what you told me, you know, and it's okay, so you tell him the story, and then you know, they take off, and you know, that another, you know, 20 minutes later, there'd be some other guy, you know, it's like, all right, tell them what, you know, it's like, okay, all right, I'll tell the story. And and it was, and it was like, um, I think that's what they were doing was just kind of at that time, that was your sales. That was your hype. And, uh, right. and you can generate uh, the sales, but yeah, that was a, a, a really fun time. And, and I think it was a long time there was a quite a long time by the time that car came out but um if I recall I mean uh, it was another uh, amazing seller
1: yeah yeah we made some updates to it along the way I think uh the rear arms we changed the design and the front too, where they went to the pillow ball so you can adjust it made things stronger you can adjust mm-hmm. the toe in and things differently so that was kind of like you could say a 0.2 and a 0.3 version, which we didn't really have at that time, but and then it transitioned into the nitro TC3, which then, you know, sales did really well in that car too. And that, I think that car, because I came from that base key on-road gas, mm-hmm. when we did the nitro TC3, I was super excited about that because I was able to run on-road gas again, full suspension. And then yeah. we, um, went to a two speed transmission and that was kind of cool designing that testing that and uh, getting that going. And, um, that was a fun car to drive with the gas truck or the, the Metro TC3, but it, it, it did well, you know, nothing really did as good as the RC 10, mm-hmm. you know, because it, it didn't have as a long stretch like that car did Yeah, and, and turn into all these different things. But, you know, things are different now when RC 10 was out, you had like low C in the picture and associated and yeah. Traxxas was kind of there, you know? So it was, it, for like a couple of years, we'd be on top and mostly came out with something and they'd be good for a couple of years. And then we'd have to rethink what we're doing and come out with some new parts and we'd be on top. So kind of like a leapfrog thing between two, maybe three companies. Uh, but now, you know, with so many companies making things, it it makes it more difficult. But back in these times, it was, it was different for sure.
2: You know, I think to me, the, the off-road cars, you know, in between here we had the B2, the B3 generation, but it felt like, you know, those were successful, but it felt like, um, where really kind of was the next home run, I think was, it felt like the B4 was kind of the, um, the, the next home run two wheel drive car. I mean, and that, and that was one where you're able to get a, a good uh, amount of time out of it.
1: Yeah, uh, that was pretty good because, um, like the B two, um, so that was a pretty big change probably more of a milestone change, but that started it. Uh, a lot of learning process happened earlier on. So then the B3 came out and we had the B3.2 and the different ones. And so a lot of that learning time went into the B4, G4. And uh, so you kind of got the best of all this stuff, you know, from that type of chassis, you know, the molded shock towers and, and the shocks were getting better with, with threaded shock bodies. And, um, we went to the, the bigger dips, the lower ratio, um, 52 tooth, you know, the bigger ring gears or the bigger uh, diff rings and more balls in there. So that the diffs were locking in better. And, uh, I think the slipper, I don't know if we made a jump in the slipper at that time, but, um, all these things kind of came together for, for that era of car. Like you said, it was a it was a milestone. I think it was kind of, um, the end of that platform before we went to the B5, you know, mm-hmm. so you had all these things come together where the, the the tires that were out at the time were good and the tracks weren't quite clay tracks like they are now, or they're just kind of getting there, you know, and, and everything was kind of coming together at that point. The cost was still low for everything.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Not that the costs are super high now, but still the costs were affordable. And I just want to bring this back up again. We we try and do everything uh, to make this affordable for the average customer. And mm-hmm. one of the things we do by doing this is to not go too crazy on some things. That, like when you machine something, you make it the best that it can be, the lightest, the strongest, and all that. But there's more you could do to to make it that extra five percent more of that doubles the cost. Yeah, and those are the kind of things we try not to do because when you get the cost jacked up so high, kind of like touring car now, you know. You, you scare away so many of these people and the, and the hobby can't grow. We're always cost, try to think cost-wise, like what can we do to keep the cost down to, to make it easier for the customer and the customer's wallet to be able to get into this work, get into the, sport, get into the mm-hmm. hobby, you know? Um, and that's, if you always kind of looked at pricing of things, we, we try to make sure our cars were cost less than everybody else, but still good quality. Mm-hmm. Um, there's others have something that may be better and that's fine. But, you know, I, I just see this whole direction um, that we're going down it is, is, you know, it's inevitable, but we try and slow that down to where just so make it friendly and, and economical for people to get into racing. You know, mm-hmm. so I think this car was still at that point where, you get a lot for your money
2: uh, and yeah. a good car, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's like, and, and that's essentially the the B4, T4, right? Yeah, B4. So, so when you got, got into, you know, in the 2000s, basically the art to me was, that's when everything kind of went RTR nuts for a while. Like you guys kind of had to, come out with rtr gts and and two wheels and trucks and and um and then thunder tiger kind of got involved and there was more manufacturing overseas and what i mean obviously that could be a whole nother story too but just briefly what was it like kind of in during that time where all of a sudden it went from you know Alright, we had these kits, people built it themselves and then like for some reason we just went RTR crazy like at the end of 90 <laughs> at the 90s into the early 2000s like everything had to be ready to go and it would like, you know, you had instead of having one vehicle, now you have to have multiple ones cuz you have an RTR plus a So what was that whole and then Thunder Tiger kind of got involved, right? Right. So I don't know really what sparked everything off. But um,
1: at that time, that's when, um, it's, I don't know how to explain it, but at that time, it's kind of like when people wanted to get stuff and then mentality-wise, I don't really know how mental, how people change the way they think, but you nobody know, wanted to build stuff anymore. It, it, it was gradual, but this is the time where people want an instant gratification. They want RC cars were big, uh, you know, everybody's got them, but they didn't want to build them. They just, I, okay. I, I got money. People were making money at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's working, everyone's you know driving these big SUVs and everything's going good. How can I just buy it done? So everybody wanted an RTR, which, you know, I, I can see that, but so we sold kits and we sold RTRs, but also that time, People didn't want to spend a lot of money. You can get stuff overseas cheaper. Um, That's when a lot of businesses, you know, like you said, it's a different subject, but um, that's when a lot of businesses went overseas. Either you went overseas to have stuff made or you went out of business. So unfortunately, you know, we, we had to follow that trend or we wouldn't even be in business right now. But Mm -hmm. one of the things, our partnership with Thunder Tiger was Thunder Tiger made engines. They made aircraft and engines and stuff. And so when we were doing the RC-10 GT, we needed an engine for it, and they were able to uh, supply these engines. So we worked with them in a design of an engine for our car, specifically for our RC-10 GT, uh, which they supplied. And then they also could do assembly because if you think back at this time, we didn't really have a lot of cars assembled mm-hmm. RCRs. So they were able to supply an engine and do all the assembly. So, um, and this was the time too we, we worked with them. So we would shift parts back to them. They would assemble it. They would think could get radios cheaper because all the radios are made overseas anyways. They get the radios, they build the motors, they assemble it, supply it back to us, and then we, we distribute it. So they were our way to uh, assemble cars. Before that, we had stuff assembled in Mexico, uh, close to us. That kind of went okay. Uh, we had stuff made in the Philippines, I think touring cars at that time. So we had, it was just too expensive to make stuff here. You know, bottom line, it just mm-hmm. that's just the way it was. So. Uh, We're not the only ones, but, you know, just follow that trend. And that's kind of why we are, uh, as this whole United States goes, a lot of stuff's just done overseas. But um, so that's kind of how our path went to Thunder Tiger. Uh, Working with them, we had a great uh, relationship working with them. They wanted the best for us. We wanted the best product. So working together, um, it, it seemed like a good fit. You know, so we, they made some good RTRs for us. But like you said, too, we, we came out with a lot of cars at that time. The, the B4 was in the 2000s. Yeah. Uh, Monster GT we had, the GT2, the RC8, B44, SC8, SC10, SC104. <laughs> was there. All that time within that about 10-year period where, you know, we just, we can make all these cars and, uh, you know, just things were moving.
2: <laughs> Expansion. <laughs> And when um, kind of in between here, I had where we were talking about the the one eighth scale off road category. So it's like, all right, you know, you, you did the on road thing with the you know TC three. It's like all of a sudden now you're rotating back off road eight scale. Now we're nitro off road eight scale. And I remember seeing your prototype uh, eight scale buggy, which you know back then what was you know stands out was a lot of the white. White parts, sometimes they, you know, in those days, obviously all machined. But do you have any memories of that first 8-scale build that you guys did for testing? Um, The
1: 8-scale was a little bit different than basically everything beforehand because Thunder Tiger, now working with Thunder Tiger, um, they had an 8-scale car. Mm -hmm. And so their car wasn't really very good. It it was good, but not at the levels that we would have wanted it to be. So, seeing what they had and what we can work with, with what they had, say, uh, differential parts, ring and pinions, um, uh, the gears, um, you know, just different materials and stuff that they already had that we could work with, we thought, okay, that's a good basic starting point to where we can build the car from there. They had uh, steering blocks already cast. Uh, they already had uh, universals and that kind of stuff. So we just basically had to make the suspension the way we wanted it using, say, 50% of their parts. I don't really know if, off the top of my head. I wasn't uh, involved in too much of the design part. Cliff could probably tell you a lot more than, than I could for sure. He's a buggy master. Yeah, um, But uh, it, it's kind of different. Because we started with uh, using some of Thunder Tiger's parts to mm-hmm. to make this car.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And then from there it snowballed and and um, you know that's where the s c eight came
2: from. so uh, one of the other big couple big ones we had in there was when um, this short course thing went crazy with the s c ten, and you guys jumped in that, and, and you know here we are again, you know. Um, you were kind of able to use some of the platform from the T4 and uh, drag it over to the SC10, and um, and that was a mega success, and, you know, we rode that short course uh, wave for, uh, you know, probably five or six years where it was just booming.
1: Yeah, the SC10, the short course, stuff. we also made a SC8 uh, mm-hmm. with our A-scale platform when that uh style racing, real car racing was, was just on fire.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And to tell you the truth, I liked it because it looked so real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the trucks of real, we're, we're making replica bodies of the, you know, the cars that were actually racing. Yeah. Red bull car. We're working, um, uh, with, um, the different drivers, uh, sponsoring them. So that, so we would, uh, copy their, uh, paint scheme on our RTRs and, it was just kind of a cool atmosphere. We go; they have a West Coast series out here that we would go to um, see the different races and and have a little track built at the races and stuff. And uh, you just kind of, I don't know, just like like you said, there's just a wave of of short course racing that took off, and Traxxas got into it and they they sold a bunch of them, you know, and which was yeah. really good for everybody because it got more people in the hobby. At mm-hmm. that time, it was really cool because everybody wanted those things. You could go down any street, any neighborhood and somebody had one. Yeah. You With know? uh, anything good for the hobby, it's a good thing. Whether it's Tracks or Snicket a Bunch or you know, Low Seer or whoever, as long as it's bringing people in, we just need mm-hmm. to bring people in and mm-hmm. that's what it did to bring them in. Awesome. You know, we'd have yeah. our little piece of the pie and we're happy, but yeah. getting people to, to run RC, that's
2: good for everybody so you know as that you know we this is to me i think kind of the we're kind of getting into the the uh, the end of the, the run of of what i had built up for questions but we're kind of getting into now where the the 10 scale buggy is to me what happened is that the the short course stuff kind of was really cooking for five or six years it really spawned a lot of new racers but then they all got curious they got into buggy racing uh two-wheel buggy racing because for some reason we always end up back at two-wheel buggy and um and then uh, things started changing you know the, the the track conditions we started racing we needed the tracks had more traction the cars are are changing you guys went and he uh, revised and built a whole new b5 and a b5m which had a first uh mid-motor buggy you guys made and um what you know th- this was kind of a big transitional period
1: it really was the the b5 time was when um lipo batteries really took off and people were still running stick pack. So it's kind of in between, um, brushless motors, you know, was a, we had to come out with a car that would accept lipo batteries. Um, but at that time it was kind of a wild west. Some were bigger, some were smaller, some were wide, some were flat, some were, um, you know, double wide. Just, the shapes were all over the place. Nothing was really standardized yet. So, When we did the B5, the tracks were just starting to come around where there was more clay tracks, a little more traction on some, but not on all. So it was tough to make a decision to just make a B5M, you know, a mid-motor car because some tracks didn't have the traction. The tires still weren't as good. And so we had to make a rear motor. It was actually pretty tough at that time because (laughs) – some people want in our group, you know, so much, we just need to make a mid motor. We need to fit a lipo and that's it. But the rules said that you had to fit in a stick pack. If you want to rent the nationals, you had the car had to be able to accept a stick pack in there because if a guy that maybe don't have all the cool latest stuff and he just has, you know, a uh, brush motor and a stick pack, he's got to be able to raise too. So, he had to be able to fit his stick pack in there with a brush motor or whatever situation. So this was kind of um a car that was uh it should have been the B six, but we had to make some sacrifices. That and that's why like the 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 center of the chassis is so big you could put the battery in almost any way you want. Um it's unfortunate because it's wider than we wanted it. There's so many things we, we wanted to do but couldn't do because of that darn um uh, battery pool mm-hmm. and also having a rear motor um and a mid-motor shock powers had to be a certain way and, and you some you want to have the shock to go on the back side or the front side it was just a you try to do too many things with one platform and we did a good job with it you know um it was just an odd time with all the lipo Things going on right now. Everyone pretty much has the same size, you know. Maybe you have a shorter, regular, tall pack or something, but they're pretty much standard. So it makes it easier. But at that time, it was kind of a mess, you know. Yeah. We did the best we could with what we were thrown at.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy because you're like, um, <laughs> it was a situation where it's like, man, right now we really have to have a new car, huh? Because. This is a tough time to um, to to make it exactly how we want. Yeah.
1: So if you think of it like that, that would be like a B2. You know, we kind of changed platforms and we kind of put all this stuff on there. It's something new. But you ended up with a B4. You know, you had to go through all these things to get to, like, now we got a B6.2, right? So you went through all these different things to get to what's a bitching car right now because... You know, it has all these things that you had to go through, and it's all refined and it's all super fine tuned, and now it's a, it's a pretty good car. Uh, yeah, but the B five was kind of a, you know, the middle child.
2: Yeah, and um, yeah, kind of real quickly. What um, during that time you also, um, uh, <laughs> you, you had the eight scale program, which to me the eight scale one. Uh, has always been really difficult uh, for everybody and uh, just because the cars are under so much abuse. But, you know, you, you guys designed a car and essentially tooled up a whole nother aid scale and I'm not going to say threw it away, but you decided not to sell it and then um, had to make an, another project and it kind of went back to, I, to me, it kind of felt like a, a, a little um, stealth car-ish where you made these A-arms where you had to drill your own holes and to, to kind of start from scratch and make a whole new 8-scale buggy platform. And I was a little curious as, you know, if how much you were involved in that one and, and kind of that transition from the car you didn't really like and didn't sell to that that, okay, we're going to do this again and, and, uh, kind of do it a little old school in a sense.
1: Yeah. Um, are you talking, like referring to the B3, stepping up to the B3 now?
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I think with, with our RC8, RC8.2 and, and taking it as far as we can go with what we had to work with, because we still had to work with some, some Thunder Tiger items, you know, so mm-hmm. Not, not as much, but we're, we're like the diff parts and that were kind of almost stuck, you know. And this was the point where we had to make a change because other guys were going faster. And we were, well actually, other guys were going faster almost all along. So it was, we are almost a step behind every step of the way. So we had to take a step uh, or a direction at this time to make a new car from the ground up. Our, our design, associated design, 100%. Mm-hmm. And so and we did a lot of testing uh, with other brand cars. We, we drove everybody's cars, built them all up. And and some guys' cars were good on a certain type track, and other guys' cars were good on another type track. So you, you had basically a pillowball style or the caster box style. And um, you, you had to decide. Um, yeah, you know, not that we were going to copy one or the other, but you had to decide on what type of car, uh, like the RC10. You know, we had to we had to look at all the different type of ideas to think, well, what's the best idea design uh, for for at that moment? And so, looking at pillowball style and castle block style, um, we, we after testing everything, the pillowball style was better for the general customer Mm -hmm. that style car drives easy and it drives easy on most tracks. You know, it may not be the best car for all tracks, but it drove easier on most tracks. So the, the general customer can build a car and do well at most tracks. And that's kind of the direction we wanted to go to even for our team guys. Of course, it's, yeah. not the, you know, it's not just, you know, and it's not just our team guys we worry about. We try and do things for like, a, like I've been saying for everybody, you know, and we want everybody to go fast because our, our team guys can make anything go fast. And sometimes they want something, um, you got a guy like Cavalier or, or Spencer or, or Kimball, all these top guys that can drive anything. And they want at that certain, you know, 110% spot where they can make it just sing but you give that to a regular guy and they're all over the place. So yeah. we need a car that, um, can work for most people most of the time. And that's the direction that we took with the, with the B3. Um, and it, and it worked out. It was the right direction. So, um, most of the time it's a good car, uh, on most of the tracks, you know, we get beat here and there and, and that's the name of the game. But, um, it's a good car. It's
2: a good yeah. platform. Yeah, it's been and it's been really successful. Um, um, I mean, you guys had uh, the last couple of years. Uh, you obviously won the eight scale worlds with uh, Davide Ongaro, Won won the eight scale worlds, and then Spencer, you know, winning this year uh, with the two wheel, um, kind of having both titles as the world champion. Uh, In those two classes, uh, I don't think it gets harder than those two classes. I think those are the most difficult.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. But you know what's really neat is uh, when Spencer won and when David A. won, they won with cars that you could pretty much buy everything on those cars. Yeah, It's not like the stealth cars where, yeah, we built these special cars that – only these guys could have, and you know, and and they pretty much took that to win that race. But now nowadays, it's just different. Things change so much and so fast yes. that if you want to go run race against Spencer in his next big race, whenever that might be, um, you can pretty much have everything he's got in his car. And if you go and talk to him; he'll tell you how to set it up exactly like he's got. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't have special suspension on for special tires or special this and that. It's, it's At most races, he's got the same thing that you can go buy right off the shelf. I yeah. think it's it's kind of good uh, for the average guy to, to be able to do that.
2: Yeah. It, it's actually hard for them to accept. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, there's no excuses now. Lots of times now. the driver, yeah, the drivers are like, Really, mine's that close to his? Man, what am I doing wrong? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Well, <laughs> right, it comes out with talent.
0: <laughs> but uh, I, I, started
2: so racing,
1: I started racing. I racing again.
2: Yeah, I mean, and and we'll we'll hit that right when we close out. But you you right. you got on. Um, you talked a little bit about the beast getting into the B six, um, probably the the fastest two wheel buggy you ever really turned around going from B five to B six. But you kind of explained. In the B five generation, where you were, and then the B six, you kind of got to where you wanted to go, in a sense, because the electronics stabilized a little more, and the batteries and motors,
0: right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So that, um, yeah, like we were talking about before, with the B five, there was there's so many different things happening at that time, and it got all refined uh, to where we can, we could, we could come out with the B six. Mm-hmm. Um, the the batteries and the motor there's no more rear motor stuff you, you can pretty much uh, with the, with the car now that we have uh, there's three different positions you can have the motor so you can have it you know all the way back way back so we're, a lot of guys that are running in Australia some of the traps are, uh, tracks are kind of slippery so they need to have the traction or, or any track that might be slippery so having the motor way back um, helps them and and you can get to the point where you you lay the motor down. In the B5, when we went to Japan, I think when Spencer won, I made a special transmission case for those guys and we basically laid out, made the the lay down transmission basically to get the motor way up front. And uh, that's kind of the first time we did that. Um, But that from the motor way up front, basically as far as you can go, to laying it back, it gives you that range um, in one platform. Um, and it's pretty simple to do too. You know, you change one track to another, you can change that pretty quickly. But the car's pretty versatile. And at this point, all the suspension, um, like where the hinge pins are in the back, there's so many different positions you can get. You can get almost anything now. It's super refined. Um, and easy, like I said, easy for the guys to go out and um, you can go online and look at somebody's setup sheet for. For that track in the area, and they they have a good starting position. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of easier than it used to be. It, it, there's a lot more that you can adjust, but you can get there quicker, and and um, have it easy to drive. I think.
2: And uh, you know, the one thing I was going to ask you too is with. You know and you kind of alluded to it earlier where um you know the the cost is going up a little bit more on these vehicles obviously it needs to be a little higher over the years just with uh, the way uh inflation or whatever but um you know you, you kind of alluded to it earlier that you know the you're always trying to keep the price in a in a great point but with these vehicles turning around a little, the platform turning around more quickly than they used to, and and um, the being the the product being a little more technical in terms of setting them up. Uh, where do you feel like the the ten scale buggy, like that class and that segment is at? In you know, you mentioned you're you're doing some racing. You got a good feel for where the cars are at today, and and uh, do you think that, that it's still kind of in a healthy direction, or do you think it's going a little more towards touring car or is it kind of in that middle ground still?
1: Um, I think all RC cars are going to that touring car thing. It's just a matter of how long it takes to get there. Yeah. And we talk about the touring car thing, getting there. Well, slot cars back in the day, they kind of the same thing. They started with inline motor with stamped parts and everything. It got to where Now, um, there's only a few guys that race the very top class. There's maybe 20 guys, you know, that kind of races worldwide. And, and it's really a shame because of the price is so much for, to go to a big race like that and, and touring cars getting there. And I'm sure these cars will get there someday, but we're doing our best to, to keep it, keep the cost down even to the point where, um, we look at every single piece that goes in that box, every single piece. And, you know, something may cost two cents more here or a dime there. But when you add up 10 of those 10 things, that's, you know, 10 cents more, that's a buck. Mm-hmm. So every time you, you can take off a buck here and there, it's saved that money for the customer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, when you make things cost too much, you're going to scare away these guys enough not have more people racing. Everything we're doing is trying to get, people into the sport and race and wow. i think the car that we have with b6 um i started racing about three years ago um kind of when my my dad my mom passed away my mom and dad passed away and it freed up some of my time to go do some of this stuff um and in doing so it got me more familiar again with uh, with what we're making and i, I needed to be uh, more in that spot i don't drive like i used to be i'm not at that World champion level or national champion level anymore. But I have a good time on Wednesday nights at OCRC and um, makes me feel good. And I know that my car is better than I am. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the cars now are better than the driver is. And if it's, it's like you talked about Spencer, uh, you walk up to Spencer and you, you have your car and he has his car, it's pretty much the same, you know. So if you're not driving like Spencer, it's probably because you're not as good, but the car yeah. is. So yeah. the cars nowadays, when you go to these big races and you see like the Reedy race, you watch a video of the Reedy race, the you know, the Losi car, the associated car, the, the, the Kyosho car, you know, these, these guys, they're so close together. They're driving so close and you can see that the cars can do it. So you, mm-hmm. if you have the right setup, the right tires and the capability, the cars can do it. And so it's kind of neat to where that's okay. You know, if you're this, if you're a Lucy guy, that's great. If you're a Lucy guy, that's great. You know, as long as there's more people coming to the track, that's the best part. And the cars can try, can handle it. You know, um, I think that's kind of the way the B6 is now. B6.1, B6.2. It's, it's a really good car to drive. It's, it's fun to drive. And it, And you still have to tune it, of course, strings and tires and shocks and all that, but it's tunable to get to where it's better than you are. That's where I feel anyway, unless you're like those top, super top guys, you know, that are like looking for that little super thing that they can't get. And we're, we're always, because of who we are and because of our nature, we want the car to be able to do that. So we're working towards that. But for the average guy, we're also looking at, You know, maybe we don't anodize this thing blue. Maybe we leave it, just leave it silver because, you know, we just saved a buck on the kit. Not that we're trying to make a dollar more, but we're trying to save the customer that buck, you know, or maybe we can find little things here and there that will make it better for the customer and the better for the customer's wallet to keep people coming into this hobby and keep it growing, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're looking for those little things, even to to save a, a couple Uh, pages out of the instruction manual because maybe you can see it online. That will make the cost of the manual down. Or or maybe um, you make a generic box, you know, that you put a a sticker on the end that says what it is. Maybe you just saved another 50 cents on a box. You add all these things up um, and people don't really realize this stuff. So that's kind of why I'm bringing that manufacturing wise. Um, I, I, I see a lot of things, you know, that people say, oh, it's just the company just trying to make money off you. But yeah, it really isn't that way, you know? Yeah. It's not on our side.
2: So, um, recently, uh, you guys did some brand realignment where you kind of were able to, and I'm sure this is something that you maybe have always wanted to do or in the last 10 years, but you're able to say, you know, Really, the name of the company is Associated Electrics, and underneath that, you have Team Associated, Reedy, and now you have this element, RC. Uh, so maybe you can just talk about a little bit, a little bit of the future and kind of how this element kind of uh, uh, is in the picture.
1: So the element was an idea that was bit thought of for quite a while. Um, knowing that we're getting into this um, crawling type vehicle or, or fun vehicle, mm-hmm.
3: uh,
1: not that the others aren't fun, but more of a playful vehicle.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I, it's hard to describe what a crawler is because when I saw, when I saw we were working on a crawler and I saw the guys testing them, I laughed. You know, I go, "That's as fast as goes? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and until and until I drove one, and went and crawled on the rocks and everything. I have one. So I, I know it, it's actually a lot of fun, um, but it's to a different customer. And so mm-hmm. the whole thought of, um, this being an associated brand, um, was thought of in a different way to where maybe this, this should be its own brand mm-hmm. Buy associated. And that's where the element came in. So, uh, we're constantly making, uh, we sort of building this up to be more than what you see now and there'll be things coming out that um, you'll, you'll kind of see what's happening I can't really talk about but uh, for this kind of guy of a crawler or that type vehicle that doesn't go to the track per se and go racing but he can do events and have fun and compete you know there, there's so many different levels in there but most of these guys go to some spot in their city to to do this stuff with other people or family. You can go camping or whatever and bring it and and find something to go crawl over. It's just a different um, thought pattern in in RC. Mm -hmm. And so the element branding now is a different thought pattern as well and trying to cater to these kind of people that um, are... Are like minded, you know. Um, so it's it's not an experiment, but it's kind of an experiment to see, um, you know, where this goes. But so far, so good.
2: Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I obviously we we're, we're in that market too, and it's uh, you know doing really well. And it was always kind of nice to see you guys kind of get into it too, um, from the standpoint of. You know, it's a, um, you know, it's a brand you can count on, obviously, and and when you look at the the vehicle, um, you know, parts and the design of it, you can certainly see where a lot of these, uh, the, a lot of the experience from designing and building race cars and materials and products, are involved in 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 those vehicles as well.
1: Yeah, and you probably see or have. Um, realize that we're not always first to the market. Um, and typically, there's reasons behind it. Maybe, you know, because we're so far engulfed in something that we just don't have time to do it or it hasn't proved itself out yet. Um, and the crawling is kind of one of those things, too, where crawling has been doing very well for a long time and it's still growing and it looks like it's not going to stop. You know, it's not like a short course where it kind of ran its course and was done. I think crawling and that whole type of vehicle will be uh, going on for a long time. So, with that thinking, that's kind of why we got into it and getting into it when we did. Again, we can try all these different kind of cars and kind of um, use that in designing of you know what we think is the best. You take all the best features and put it together, and again, trying to do it at a low cost. There's some guys have these trucks that are thousand dollars, and they got all this cool badass stuff on there. Yeah, but again, it's a thousand dollars. You know, and there's guys that are gonna buy it, but you gotta see the guy that's walking into a hobby shop. He sees that and thinks it's cool, but we gotta sell to the guy and get a guy a really good product for a low cost. Um, yeah, and that's kind of where we're trying to get into is, is give them something like like the B6 you know mm-hmm. it's a good car for a low cost and um, there's upgrades stuff you can uh, and especially in Corolla stuff there's so many different upgrades you can get um, to personalize your car which is so cool you know every one of them look different neat neat to see that
2: so I think we're kind of wrapping up here just wanted to uh, if you wanted to give some thanks to anybody, <laughs> um, s- sponsors or just Associated, who uh, you know, any people in general, and uh, and we'll we'll close it out, and then uh, I think we're we're done here.
1: Yeah, I I want to say thanks, of course, to Associated um, for giving me the only job I've ever had, mm-hmm. and to make it not like a job. Um, it's just an experience that, um, I feel so grateful for.
2: And I also 42, want to say 42 you. years, you said, right? 42 for over 42 years. Wow.
1: Okay. <laughs> that's
2: crazy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's too long, but, <laughs> but I like it. I, you know, I, I
1: can say, you know, you hear all these people talk about their jobs, like, ah, oh, I gotta go to work tomorrow. Oh, I gotta do this. I'm like, oh, I gotta go to work tomorrow. You know, what am I going to yeah. make? You know, I gotta, yeah. it's kind of neat. I didn't talk too much about, prototyping stuff. I really, really, really like prototyping stuff. So whenever we come out with something new and I get to make stuff, I got a CNC mill, I can work on that and make it or late or whatever. I, I really, really enjoy that and um, doing this uh, for business, for work, it, it lets me do what I really like to do. So thank you, Associated. Um, and I want to thank too um, people like you and basically all the races I've worked with um through through my whole experience from when i first started till now and it's kind of neat because it's it's a it's a family that i feel close to anywhere i go i went to the uh, world championships they had over the summer at um, steel city and in pomona and saw some of the guys that when I used to race a scale on road, they were there, you know, Ralph Jr. was there. Bill Giannis was there, Chuck Linn and all, all these guys. And I could just go right to them to start talking to them like it was yesterday. Yeah. And everywhere in between, I can go to different tracks and all that. It's like a family, um, that is really, um, part of the, probably the best thing of this whole industry is, is having that family. Um, and I, I just want to thank the guys along the way, you know, whether you're a top racer or a guy I just met at the track or whatever just um, thank you for being part of the family and, and, and help everybody that you can just think of ways to get people in the hobby. Um, and, uh, I think one of the things I wanted to touch base with was, uh, how do we get people into the hobby? And that, that's probably a, maybe a, a podcast you can do is h- how to get people into the hobby Mm-hmm. It's so difficult now, you know, with people playing video games or, or whatever they're doing, you know, sitting on their phones, pushing the keyboard, you know, how, how do you get them into the hobby? So I think that'd be a good topic to, to get out there, but yeah, anyways, uh, thanks to everybody, the different tracks and, um, just keep doing what you're doing and trying to do more.
2: Well, we totally appreciate it and definitely a lot of great stories and uh, we've been trying to get it done for a little while. But, you know, we had a cliff on some time ago and and we'd like to we'll definitely revisit. We can kind of get back into some of the other questions we may have. And there's we didn't really ask any questions for you from anybody else this time. Cause we felt like we already had so many questions that it was going to take so long. So, um, but yeah, w- but yeah, we definitely like to do it again at some point and we really appreciate you, you being on.
1: Sure. Thank you for having me. It's a good way to pass the time. Um, now I gotta go watch the grass grow. <laughs>
2: That's right. I yeah. saw you working on that.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, um, I just was, redid some of my yard in the backyard and had a replant, with seed And I just have to share how it's growing every day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Well, we hope that's uh, what
1: hope it's come you, down to.
0: Yeah, really. This is a crazy time. So, um, hope everybody, you know, hope you and your family are safe and everybody associated. So hope everybody takes care of there.
1: Yeah. Luckily everybody's healthy and, and working, um, and surviving and, um, Doing good. I hope it's the same for you guys and everybody else out there. Just be smart with what you're doing and, um, and do what's right.
2: Yeah. All right, Curtis. Well, we'll you uh, can just you know uh, basically just hang up and then we'll finish it off. But uh, appreciate it again, and uh, we'll see you soon.
1: Thank you, Jason. All right, thanks, thank sir. you.
0: All right. Yep. All right. Have a good night. You bye. Too. All right. Bye. All right. That was Curtis Husting awesome stuff dude i just loved i just sat back and enjoyed listening to that great stuff
2: yeah i mean i i i thought that that's kind of where you would be with the whole thing (laughs) because it really goes through uh that great time period there where especially where you know you know you were you're maybe the most active in rc and um, i mean there is so much there i mean we could redo that whole thing all over again and spend another three or four hours talking to him about some of that stuff he did but you know, we tried to hit some of the highlights and, and, uh, and like he said I mean he told me earlier you know he's like because I was looking at these questions and he's like some of this stuff he's like I kind of forgot about you know like he's like it's just he's like you do so much stuff over the years and he's like he some of the stuff he's like I haven't thought about in so long um, but uh, yeah I thought it would be cool I know we, we always do so well with uh, when we talk about the vintage and uh, the old days the glory days and all that stuff And uh, <clears throat> yeah I got a feeling this is going to be a good one for those guys
0: Again, big thanks to Curtis, Huston, for being on the show. Awesome stuff. And Jason, thank you.
2: No problem. Great times. Really appreciate it as well. And uh, everybody, if you got some questions, let us know. Get ready for that next podcast. Of course, they could always ask you for certain people that we could get to on the show. I don't know. We don't. We don't we don't really ask too often what guests people want to see. We just kind of we kind of do that for them.
0: Yeah, send send us a message. Let us know who you want on the pod. We'll try and get them on here for you guys. All right, guys, we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks. See you.